Psalm 39. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely, everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent, I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, 1130. My name is Darren. It's a privilege to talk to you. Please keep that passage open in front of you as we go through it. Before we do that, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We pray as we examine it now, your spirit would be with us, helping us as a church and as a people to grow in knowledge and in love of you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Oh, well, folks, you know what the absolute worst thing in preaching is? You know the worst thing in preaching is? It's when the preacher forces all four of his points to begin with the same letter. <laughs> but what can you do when there is four obvious parts to this psalm and we so obviously see a crime, we see a conviction, we see a confession, and we see a cry. Um, you, you, it's cheesy, it's dreadful, it, it's sloppy, but, but what can you do? I must submit to the text, and I'm, I'm sure you will forgive me, uh, for that's what we're dealing with this morning. We're dealing with confession, and it is a, a wonderful thing to look at as we continue our uh, series, little summer series on the Psalms. We've been brought very high looking at um, praise. Uh, we've brought, been brought very low last week as we looked at lament. Uh, but today we're going through the middle road as we look at the, the theme of confession. We do it because Jesus tells us to, to confess to one another and to confess to God. Uh, we do it each week at an Anglican service. We have a confession in, in every service uh, built in, and, and this really does have a lot to say to us. It's a terrific psalm. It's worth thinking about. Uh, you may not know it was um, written by David, but he, it was written for his worship leader, whose name was Jedithin. Uh, Jedithin's mentioned in Chronicles. He could play uh, the trumpet. In fact, he we're told he trained 200 other trumpet players, which if anything tells you that God took the trumpet very seriously indeed. He could also play the harp, and he prophesied for David playing the harp um, as well. But interestingly, his name had a dual meaning, that of praise and that of confession. 
and that it's appropriate that we examine uh, David's prayer and song of confession today as he thinks about his sin, as he thinks about the brevity of his life, but also how to get right with God and how his trespasses could be dealt with. For it seems that David knows if his sin is not dealt with, he will always be a stranger to God. He will never be able to meet him. And that is, uh, I think, the helpful themes the psalm uh, develops, but it also helps us with our own mistakes. And uh, not just when you, you, you make an error and you look back on reflection, you say, oh, yeah, that, that was a mistake. It really helps us with the things that we do in our life that we knew they were wrong before we did it, we knew it was wrong while we were doing it, and we knew it was wrong afterwards, and we're probably going to do it again. It helps us with the habitualness of sin in our life and what, what we do with it. And so we're going to, I, I've caught, given them four titles with the letter C, but they just help frame it for us. There are four parts to this psalm, and the first is uh, what we call the crime. Uh, David said he will watch his ways and keep his tongue from sin in verse 1, and he's going to put a muzzle on his mouth in the presence of the wicked. So he's going to keep quiet in front of unbelievers. Uh, that word wicked was a universal phrase, not just for those who were doing bad things, but uh, for those who were unbelievers. Uh, he's talking those who are not in the people of God. And it seems at the start of this prayer, he seems very loyal. He does not want to dishonor or discredit God um, with those who are not God's people. And I think it's an important reminder. It's very important for how God's people, for how Christians act in the public sphere. People will judge our God by it. But then in verse 3, something has changed. He says his heart grew uh, hot within him. Uh, while he meditated, the fire burned, and then he spoke with his tongue. And the, word that, the verb that is used is actually an explosion. And we don't know exactly what's going on here. We, we know that uh, two other people in the Bible experienced this. Jeremiah exploded with righteousness. He said, I could not keep God's word within me. They exploded out. Um, but we also know it can be used dishonorably, such as Job's friend Elihu, who exploded out with pompousness um, and unrighteousness. So, um, what does David say that he exploded with? We're, we're not really sure because the next verse says, show me my life's end. That doesn't seem uh, particularly sinful. Uh, perhaps he's yelling at God. Perhaps he's very sinfully angry with God. Um, it's also possible this was maybe linked to Psalm 37 or something he said in Psalm 38 where we're not exactly sure, but it seems to be there's been some sort of error with his words or with his speech and uh, it's true, isn't it? We come each week, at least in the more traditional Anglican confessions, we say, forgive us our sins in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And if you're anything like me, it's so often that our words are the ones that are overlooked and forgotten about. And I think it's only getting harder to guard our words, for we now live in an age and a culture that is training us to assert ourselves and to communicate and, and to talk and to, to speak out. And everyone can do it now. Everyone can have a go. All you need is a phone. Some of you might be doing it right now. All you need to do is tweet or text. Uh, you can express yourself. You can assert yourself. And uh, we know that the world has become a very noisy and busy place. And a lot of that noise is not always honorable to God. 
Psalm 39, instead of answering the question, what's the right thing to say? Psalm 39 more provokes us to think, should I say this at all? Uh, And if you're anything like me, the the gap between my brain and my tongue, uh, I can find it quite frightening at times. We can come to church, we can say the confession, we can praise uh, in the songs, and yet the conversations we can have on the way home in the car or at lunch or dinner with Christian friends can be very far from being honorable to God One commentator on this, Sam, he said, uh, uh, the sign of a good marriage is that you don't say some things. And I thought that rang very true. The other shock from from this, Sam, is uh, uh, about David's speech. As he says, all of this happened while I was meditating. This might come as a big shock uh, to modern people. But did you know that in the past, that people would sometimes go into a room and sit down and they would think and they would pray and they wouldn't do anything else? And there would be no phones or or screens, and they would talk to God, and they would think about their life and their problems. And um, this word that is used for meditation is what David is doing here. Uh, The word in English is the word muse, M-U-S-E. And we don't really use that word very often. We're far more familiar with the antithesis of that word, the opposite of that word, which is the word amuse. We're very good at amusing ourselves, which literally means to not think as we pursue media and consumerism and entertainment. Psalm 39 says we would do a lot better if we spent more time musing to ourselves as opposed to amusing ourselves. Um, And it seems to be as a result of this unknown sin that David is under a conviction. There is a consequence that he is pondering And uh, it seems to be he's in the midst of pain, certainly the midst of discipline, we are told. But he asks for the Lord to show him his life's end, the number of his days. You've made my days a mere handbreadth. Uh, The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even, even those who are secure, even those who seem so wealthy and happy, their life is fading And it seems that David is so much more mature and wiser than modern people. He is aware that his life is fleeting and passing by. Um, Those of you familiar with the book Ecclesiastes will know the great theme of that book is that that a man or a woman's life is uh, like a breath. It is a vanity is the word that is used. And David here, he knows that his life is passing by through. And there seems to be a tension in this psalm, for there is a connection between the sin that David is expressing and the consequence of that sin, that his life is now facing judgment and discipline, and ultimately he knows that his life is fleeting away and passing by. Of course, this is a theme that is developed in the rest of the scriptures, there is a, a consequence between sin and, and, and suffering. And um, Paul, for example, he, he said famously that the wages of sin are death. And it's a sin here that seems to be wounding David. It's grieving him. And he realizes his sin is bringing home that deep sense of his own mortality. He's also deeply concerned with him. Um, those who heap up wealth, those who amuse themselves with gathering possessions and money, completely ignorant 
of who uh, the wealth and the possessions belong to. He says everyone goes around like a phantom, like a ghost. In vain, they're amusing themselves, heaping up wealth without knowing who it is. So he highlights two things, our words and also our greed. And it really brought home for me that famous illustration in that great Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim eventually ends up in the terrible city known as Destruction. And he comes across a district in the city known as the Vanity Fair. It's where that famous magazine literally got the name uh, for, for, for the publication from. I think they missed the cliff notes, or the context at least. Um, for this, this Vanity Fair that Pilgrim visits, uh, it's, it's, it's amusing, it's, uh, it's, it's pleasurable, it's enjoyable, but ultimately it will not last. At the end of the day, the fair must go away. The fair must be taken down. It is a temporary thing. And it is a powerful reminder and metaphor that at the end of the day, all of life will go back in the box and we'll have to give an answer to the God whose wealth and possessions it, it, it belongs to. So he's pondering his sin. He's pondering the brevity of his life. He's wounded by this realization. And it seems it is this that drives him in Psalm 39 to a confession and he asks, well, where is my hope? My hope is in you, the Lord. And it's a good question for us all to answer. For the outcomes for your wealth or your children or your career or the outcome of this or that, where do you put your hope? Who is going to solve this problem? Well, David says very clearly, I am sure that my hope is in the Lord. For David knows the real problem that he is facing in this psalm is not a temporary one or a financial one. The problem is his coming death. And how on earth, in the face of death, is he going to deal with the problem of his transgressions? He knows this is a problem that no amount of wealth or no family or friend can ever sort out for him. And so he says, no, my hope is in you in his confession, you take away all my sins. This is a hope that is fixed. It is a hope that is not transient, a hope that is not fleeting, and nor is it a hope that is in himself. What's the problem? He needs to have his transgressions, his sins dealt with. And he says, verse 8, you save me from all my sins. He didn't imagine for one moment that he was without sin. David would not have ever thought this. He, he knew that his sins were far worse than any of the sorrows he faced in this life. And as he ponders this, he moves back as he started back into silence. He says, I, I did not speak. For he knew that only the Lord's favor could deal with the Lord's disfavor. He knew he could not talk his way out of this one, and he's made to confess and acknowledge his sins before God. The great John Stott, he said, you know, modern people's greatest problem is we're unwilling to admit our sins. And I think this can be true for so many of us. We're, we're never able to hear our sin. We're never willing to admit it because our hearts are so bent in on themselves. We have become so self-justifying. We've become so defensive. Um, our moral framework of the modern era is 
Uh, God is not even on the point of reference. We're no longer worried about pleasing God. Now it seems the greatest crime you can commit is disagreeing with someone else. It's a, it's a crime against them. For we now live in a world where we're, we seem to be able to have this philosophy of choose your own adventure. Um, have your own, whatever feels right and good to you must be true. And we seem to have very little clarity on what is right and what is wrong. The Bible calls righteous and unrighteous. And this is really not popular speech or thought today, but it is one that Psalm 39 cuts right through. And it reminds me of the very start of the Bible when, when Adam and Eve and the first people were in the garden and, uh, and God very clearly said, this is good and this is evil. And it didn't take humanity very long to, to choose evil over God. And the first thing, I always thought it was so strange when I was a young Christian, the first thing that Adam and Eve realized was that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves up. It's one of the saddest lines in the Old Testament, I think. As I get older and reflect on my own sin and the sorrow it, it brings to me and to God, I, I, I realize actually that's what people have been doing ever since the garden. Uh, as we thought about in confession, we, we all try to cover up. We try to present a different version of ourselves. We, we try to, to cover up those horrible moments in life where we, someone takes our phone and goes through our photos and sees what our life is really like or, or someone uh, sees what you've been looking at or thinking about or you're at a cafe and you're chatting about a colleague or a friend in a less than honorable way. Then you realize there are just two tables over and you think, oh no, did they hear me? And, and we start to try to, to cover up. But, but I, I know, I, I'm really not saying this to, as a joke, but we, we spend our lives with the shame uh, that we have thought and we have done and spoken, and we, we try to make it go away by our own effort. And wouldn't it be a joy? Wouldn't it be a great blessing and a great credit to you if you could live in a way, if our church could live in a way that, that we're completely known and yet we're completely forgiven? Uh, it would be completely liberating to not have to cover up all the time the things that wound us, wound our relationship with others and with God, to know you're completely known and completely loved. It would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And yet this is what the Bible offers. And it says it starts here. It starts with confession. Another word we use in church and theology is the word repentance. Um, and, and it means you take a step back from yourself and you turn around and you take a step towards God. And in doing so, it, we're actually moving forward. And this is why I think confession is so important. It, it's so quaint, because in a way, confession, it takes you away from all other false hopes, all the other stuff that you try to do to deal with your sin. And it shows us that under the, the conviction and consequence of sin, there's no place to go but God. There's no hiding it, the Bible says. There's no downplaying it. There's no blaming someone else. It's brutally honest. But yet, on the other hand, you're not telling God anything that he doesn't already know. It's not like he's sitting there in heaven, rolling his eyes. Oh my gosh, what have they done now? How am I going to get them out of this one? That's not what's happening. God already knows. And, 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 and I tell you what, God thinks about it is an awful lot worse 
than we think about it. I'm I'm convinced of that. Um, Until you confess your sin, certainly for the very first time, your sin between you and God is a chasm. It is an abyss, an eternal abyss. And yet the Bible says when we confess our sin for the very first time, it becomes like the Golden Gate Bridge. It becomes the pathway to God, and it becomes the pathway to Him and to restoration when we say we're a sinner saved by grace. Tim Keller, he said this of Psalm 39. He said, it says, if you're a sinner saved by grace, the gospel takes you into the dust and then it lifts you into the skies. There is a boldness and a humility that work together. And I would say, it, and David would say, it, it starts with confession. No more covering up, no more hiding. A shame that God already knows. We have to go very low to start to become very high. And yet for David, well, he's not there yet. He, in verses 10 and 11, he's, he's still frustrated. He's wrestling in this discipline. And it seems to me that David is caught in this paradox between knowing that he has been made for forgiveness, made for eternity, made for relationship with the Almighty, and yet he is so wounded by his sin. Uh, He's not there yet as he wrestles with this discipline, and he asks that the Lord would just look away just for a moment so he might feel restored. There'll be times, there'll be hard times in life where the Lord may punish us, The Bible calls that judgment. And there'll be other times the Lord will discipline us. And this is what a loving father does. Not an abusive father, what a loving father does to move his children forward. When he sees the tragedy of the direction they're going, and he says, you must be turned around to go into this better way, this forward way of life. And yet David ends with a cry In verse 12 and 13, hear my cry, look away. I'm an ancestor. I feel like an ancestor. I feel like a refugee. That's what he says. And you think, hang on, we had lament last week. Why is he still here? And as we heard Psalm 32 earlier, there's other prayers of confession that start and end with joy. But Psalm 39 shows us that David is not quite there yet. It's showing that there is a gap between his feelings and the truth, and his feelings are lagging behind the truth of the gospel. He still feels heavy. He still feels like a foreigner and a stranger. And he says, look away, don't fixate on me any longer, God. And yet, I still think, even though it ends in a lament, there is still tremendous hope and encouragement for us today, for it brings up one of the great biblical themes of restoration, that in the Old Testament, as it began, and the New Testament completed, even refugees and aliens were given special care and consideration by God. And it brings up a great biblical theme that deep down, all of us are really looking for a heavenly home and a heavenly city. We're not there yet. As the book of Hebrews chapter 11 puts so well, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. And that's all of us. We're all looking for a home. We, as Christians, we are not permitted to be satisfied with this life. And the very concept of the alien and the stranger 
it points to the New Testament hope of heaven. And I think if people are lamenting the frustration of sin, I often think they're on the right track. Uh, And many of us will feel this at times. I mentioned earlier that some of us will be too proud to admit our sin. Some of us have too low a view of sin. We don't want to admit it. But I know there will be many others here today. It's not that we have a low view of sin. It's that we have a very low view of ourselves. We have a very low view of God's grace and His character and His forgiveness. And we we just don't feel we're ever going to make it. Like David, there is a disconnect between his feelings and the truth. Um, You know, one of my joys, one of the joys of working for a larger church is we get, an international church, we get to have many brothers and sisters in this church who are refugees or asylum seekers. And one of the great joys that the members of this church with that status, one of the great joys is when they come and tell and share with the pastors that they have got the letter in their hand inviting them uh, to the third country that is going to adopt them and give them status and citizenship after a very difficult time of waiting in Hong Kong. And you know what? There is no disconnect. There is no time gap. There is no lagging between the opening of that letter and the joy and exuberance that that person feels uh, because what they have in their hands is a bona fide fact, a truth and a hope for the future for them and their family, that within reason can never be taken away. It's there. The the promise is is sure. They've been adopted. They've got a home. They've got a future. And yet, I think that is why it is is such a powerful gospel metaphor because as Christians, that's what we're told we have. And yet, we don't always feel this way. We're told that we have forgiveness and assurance and status and a home, and yet so often our feelings lag behind that. There is a reason why we call it amazing grace, because it takes your breath away. And so I want to encourage you, those who struggle with this particular disposition, your feelings are good, and our feelings are from God, and they're, they're important. But our, the Bible tells us it is not our feelings that define us. What defines us is our status as God's children. And so we need to speak this to ourselves today. We need to bring it from our head down into our heart. And if I was going to suggest, if you wanted to know how to do this, where might be a good place to start? Well, this psalm has spoken an awful lot about a king who was seeking forgiveness and a king who said he wasn't going to open his mouth. And yet it moves us forward. As King David and then another prophet, we know him as Isaiah, in chapter 53 of his book, we're told that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. You know what? I, David and Isaiah, God was giving them a vision of the future deep work of King Jesus and what he was going to do. The only one who lived a perfectly righteous life yet could bear, and doing so could bear the transgressions of the whole world. And the only one who had the right to say anything to anyone at all times, and yet in the presence of sinful men, we're told that he, this king, kept his mouth quiet. That was the deep work of Christ. That is the cross that happened for you, so that you and I could be forgiven. 
not on the basis of how sorry you feel or what you can do, but what He has done. And this is where the Bible is brutally raw and yet perpetually available. And if you need it and you want it and you seek forgiveness today for the very first time, you can do that and it will be a seed sown in eternity forever because the cross happens for you. And yet for so many of us here today who are Christians, we still at times can go through uh, this nightmare where our sins and shame is going to be projected at the 11.30 a.m. service in front of all of us. And the Bible says you don't need to worry about that anymore. One day it is going to be projected onto a very big screen, except Jesus is going to stand up and say, I take the consequences for that. Because he got the status and the treatment that we deserve so that you and I could get his status and treatment as the perfect son of God. It's a wonderful promise, a wonderful exchange. I don't know where you need to go this morning with this information. My encouragement would be that all of us need to confess and turn back to God. We're going to sing. We're going to sing the Lord's Prayer. But I would encourage you as you do that to say to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please, Jesus, would you bear my transgressions? That is a wonderful start to a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we admit that we are powerless, we are assured of our forgiveness, the resurrection of Christ promises us this truth. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these honest psalms that, that jar us, Father, in there with the depth and the range of human emotion, yet they point us forward beyond ourselves as we ponder the questions of life and sin and death. Lord, you offer us a hope that no one can ever take away. Father, I pray that as a church, you could build us into a church of maturity, a people of maturity that know the gospel, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that we would know that we are your adopted and forgiven children. And as we do that, Father, we could go out into the world knowing our status and share it with them. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.